good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this IPS Northern Lecture Series by Professor Tan Tai-yong, our 6SR Northern Fellow. Following his lecture, Prof Tan will take questions from the audience in this hall. The Q&A session will be chaired by Ms. Lydia Lim, Head of Training and Talent Development at The Straits Times. Today's proceedings will be recorded and shared on the IPS website and our social media pages. May I now invite Prof Tan on stage to give his lecture. Good evening, everyone. <clears throat> this is my fourth lecture in the series. Now, most previous speakers would have uh, finished their, their talks already, or this being the last one, but I will keep going on. <laughs> so beyond the fourth, there'll be two more sessions, and you'll hear about that later. And I can tell you that it is not uh, a function of choice, uh, but of some degree of coercion uh, on the part of the director who's not here to tonight. Yeah. Now, in my last lecture, I uh, referred to Singapore as a port city, both in terms of functions and instincts. At various times in history, Singapore has been described as emporium, trading hub, and cosmopolis. How would I describe Singapore today? Most obviously, it is a country. More accurately, it's a sovereign nation state. Invariably, Singapore has often been called a city-state or increasingly a global city-state. All this is to suggest that Singapore has over time morphed from one form to another, largely determined by historical circumstances. Singapore author and poet Elvin Pang puts it most eloquently, and I thought I should show you the quote in full, when he says, our story was not inscribed whole upon some tabula rasa, no nations is. Building upon countless elements old and new from near and far, whether imposed, inherited, invented, or fashioned anew to suit, the Singapore we have today is the outcome of a long continuum of accommodation, adaptation, reimagining, and risk. More to the point, we are not done with our changes. We continue to become. Throughout its long history, Singapore has continuously evolved, taking on different forms. At this point, its existence as a city and country is most salient. It is a nation state that grew out of a city. Many major cities in the past have become part of larger nation states. Venice in Italy, Hamburg in Germany, Penang and Malacca in Malaysia. But Singapore's experience is unique in that the city became the country. In this lecture, I shall try to narrate how this came to be and examine how this history might show that Singapore's evolution was not a straightforward and predict predictable trajectory. Singapore's history took unexpected turns, and its current incarnation as a country and city carries tensions and paradoxes that continue to animate its development and growth. Now, we're used to the narrative that suggested that our road to nationhood um, began after the end of the Second World War. Was this really the case? Well, it's not really that straightforward. The official narrative has it that the road to nationhood. I put a question mark there. The official narrative has it that the seeds of Singapore national, nationalism were sown in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, an outcome of the British surrender to the Japanese and the ensuing occupation. The shock and trauma that followed the calamitous defeat of an imperial power at the hands of an Asian country triggered major political repercussions throughout the European empires in Asia. 
There was indeed political awakening in Singapore in the aftermath of the Pacific War, but it was not a sort of nascent nationalism that grew into mass-based movements or revolutionary wars of the types seen in India, Indonesia, Burma, and Indochina. The disruptions caused by the war and its aftermath created the conditions for widespread anti-colonial feelings. The old colonial order was no longer viable and had to be replaced. The main political force that challenged the legitimacy of continued colonialism were the communists. Governized by their successes as resistance fighters during the Japanese occupation, the Malayan Communist Party was the first organized political force to mobilize locals into action against the colonial system. By the late 1940s, the communists was a force, uh, were a force to be reckoned with. They took to subverting the colonial state by infiltrating trade unions and student organizations and launching highly disruptive strikes and direct political action against the authorities. This was an anti-colonial insurrection and an attempt at sparking a popular revolution to bring an end to British rule. The Communist Party and their sympathizers not only wanted to end colonialism, but desired to replace the old traditional political social order with a new independent socialist system. The British responded with a slew of regulations, the most severe of which were the emergency regulations applied to both Malaya and Singapore when a communist-led insurgency erupted in Malaya in 1948. The Communist Party of Malaya was outlawed and its networks curtailed. This drove the movement underground, but the communist and left-wing movement did not totally dissipate. While the left-wing movement had local political objectives, the end of colonial rule which was the objective, its political language was international. The left-wing activists drew inspiration from liberation movements elsewhere in the Afro-Asian world. Their horizons and expectations were broadened by the end of empire in South Asia, Indonesia, and Indochina, together with Pan-Africanism, Pan-Arabism, and the Afro-Asian Conference in Bandung. Much of left-wing politics was shaped by the rise of Chinese communism as an anti-imperialist and nationalist ideology. The idea of a socialist future that promised a just and equal society, especially for the working classes, appealed to the Chinese-educated youths in Singapore and Malaya, who saw the colonial state as exploitative and unjust. This was not solely a local contest for political power, determining who would take over from the departing imperialists. It was a fight to determine what type of state and society would replace the colonial state. But the British were not about to make it easy for these revolutionaries. Decolonization had to be managed such that the British interests could be maintained in post-colonial Asia. In Malaya and Singapore, the British showed that they were prepared to devolve political power to moderate groups while taking draconian measures to beat down the left-wing radicals. It was a well-worn tactic used by the British in their Asian and African colonies. The search for political successes, nationalists though they may be, who would be prepared to continue doing business with the British after the end of empire. The French and Dutch took a different approach, and the outcomes in their colonies were significantly different from those in the British colonies in Southeast Asia. When the British instituted political reforms to take the sting out of anti-colonial attacks, political parties surfaced in Singapore to contest elections. By the mid-1950s, the political climate had changed. The introduction of mass-based electoral politics would set the stage for a political contest to decide who would eventually bring an end to colonial rule and determine the future of Singapore. With tough security instruments and legislation to curtail left-wing activism, 
the way was paved for a peaceful transfer of power to a popularly elected government that took over a self-governing Singapore in 1959. While initially distrustful of the People's Action Party, the British eventually came around to see them as the most viable party to which political power could be transferred. The British was keen to preserve Singapore as a port city and a naval base and planned to reintegrate it with Malaya in due course. By the mid-1950s, London had concocted a plan known as the Grand Design, which ultimately aimed at bringing together all its Southeast Asian colonies into a super-federation anchored on Peninsula Malaya. Singapore, which had already been given city status in 1951, elevating it from a town to a city, would be a key piece in the grand design. The next step was self-government and integration with Malaya. The gradual devolution of power from the British to local politicians was therefore not predicated on the expression of some form of Singaporean nationalism. While anti-colonial politics did become a potent force, the British were able to dictate the pace and form of decolonization in Singapore. As Singapore prepared for self-government in the late 1950s, the expectation was that the next step in the political evolution would be independence from colonial rule by joining Malaya as part of a larger federation. So next is Malayan nationalism. The desire to end colonial rule in Singapore did not necessarily translate into the political ambition to achieve independence for Singapore as an independent sovereign state. While Singapore had to be politically separated from the Malayan Peninsula in 1946 as an expedient to retain a base for British activity in Southeast Asia, no one in Singapore believed that the island state would eventually strike out on its own. The separation of Singapore from Malaya under the Malayan Union scheme and subsequently the Federation was seen as only temporary. The British as well as local politicians of all stripes believed that Singapore had to eventually return to Malaya. The PAP's ultimate objective was to achieve independence for Singapore through merger. As I explained in my previous lecture, this was born out of a conviction that Singapore had no economic future if it were not reintegrated with the Malayan hinterland. From a political and security standpoint, Singapore would be too vulnerable on its own and would succumb to radical left-wing takeover unless it was fortified by the bulwark of the right-wing Malayan state. So Lee Kuan Yew and the PAP campaigned not for an independent nation-state of Singapore in the late 1950s and the early 1960s, but for merger with Malaya. Lee had argued that merger was inevitable and prepared the city-state to join the Malayan state. From 1959, he took steps to encourage a pan-Malayan outlook in Singapore with the hope of creating, in his own words, a Malayanized Singapore man who could talk, think, and act like an exemplary Malayan uh, of the Federation. To facilitate the social integration of Singapore's predominantly Chinese population into the Malayan hinterland, Malay was made Singapore's national language, and a Malay head of state, the Yang Dipatuan Negara, was installed. A Malay Educational Advisory Committee was set up in 1959, and a Malayan school syllabus introduced. Singapore became a state in Malaysia in September 1963. It did so on special terms. As a state of the Federation, Singapore would enjoy a much higher level of autonomy than all other states in Malaysia. But the trade-off was that Singapore would also have lower representation in the federal parliament, 
and was not expected to partake in the politics of the peninsula. The Tunku had envisioned that Singapore could continue to prosper economically as a port city, with Malaya as its hinterland. But political control of the Federation would have to remain in Kuala Lumpur. In the Tunku's mind, Singapore would be the New York of the Federation, while Kuala Lumpur would be the Washington DC. So the reason why I'm telling you this is that the trajectory uh, of Singapore's path or journey to nationhood was not a straightforward one, as I've just explained. It wasn't as if from 1946, after the war, there was a rise of Singapore feelings of nationalism that drove the process of decolonization leading to a Singapore state. Uh, what I've showed is that you know, there were left-wing movements who had different ambitions. Then there was a plan to reintegrate Singapore into Malaya. And Singapore did become a state of Malaysia for a couple of years from 1963 to 65. And then unexpectedly, in August 1965, it became an independent sovereign state. So this was not a straight line trajectory. It took turns in different directions and ended up in 1965 as an unexpected sovereign state. The merger project had failed and Singapore was excised once again from its Malayan hinterland. This time, with independence already obtained, there could be no return to the British Empire as a crown colony, nor was there another federation to which Singapore could append itself. An exit from the state of Malaysia meant that Singapore had to be standing on its own as a sovereign state in its own right, occupying in a world order that was organized as a collection of nation states, occupying its place in a world order that was organized as a collection of nation states. Singapore did not plan to be a sovereign state, but it had sovereignty thrust upon it. What were the chances of small sovereign states surviving? The historian Arnold Toynbee, writing in 1966, had opined that as a sovereign independent city-state, Singapore was too small a political unit to be practicable. Lee Kuan Yew, too, once said, in the context of the second half of the 20th century Southeast Asia, island nations are political jokes. I was looking for a quote. Uh, I, I'd, I'd read this from a talk given by Mr. Bilahari, and I was looking for a quote. And he had said that if someone could find a quotation, we share it with him. I found it, and I'll share it with you <laughs> later on. This was a speech given in the Singapore Legislative Assembly in 1956-57. Uh, so Lee Kuan Yew had thought that small nation states, in the context of Southeast Asia in the second half of the 20th century, um, were political jokes. While the nation state might appear to be a very natural political organization today, it is, unlike the city, a relatively new phenomenon in history. The nation states in Europe mainly emerged in the 19th century, in the wake of the French Revolution. They proliferated in the 20th century following the First World War, in 1920, the League of Nations had about 50 members. The 1815 Treaty of Vienna, which represented the international community at that time, had only eight signatories, of which three were empires, Austria-Hungary, Russia, and Turkey. After the Second World War, as empires broke up and erstwhile colonies, large and small, had to be reconstituted as nation states, their numbers grew. The United Nations now has nearly 200 members. As the new nation states emerged, many continued to struggle with the task of delineating boundaries and uniting disparate and diverse communities and geographical entities. Benedict Anderson calls the nation state an imagined community. And even today, 
nation-states are seen as younger enterprises in a long history of political organisations that have yet to prove their viability. Consider this. Cities have been around for over 5,000 years, while most nation-states are barely a century old. So in all its earlier incarnations, Singapore had functioned as a city of sorts. It was an emporium, a cosmopolis, a colonial port city, a crown colony, and then a city within a larger Malaysian federation. But it was the most unnatural nation. It did not have any of the ingredients needed to build national identity, indigenous rootedness, civilizational lineage, cultural commonness, religious, ethnic, and linguistic homogeneity. All it had was probably common political cause. The politics in the island up to 1965 had reflected its historical experience as an open port city and the international makeup of its, cosmo, of the, of its uh, population. Internationalism and populism, more than indigenous nationalism of the sort one saw emerging in India, for example, was the natural experience in Singapore from the 1920s to the 1950s. The idea of Singapore as a nation state thus sat uncomfortably with its instincts as an open commercial city that depended on trade for its survival. Yet, in 1965, Singapore had become a nation state, very much against its own expectations. It now had to get on with the business of quickly reconstituting and reimagining itself. It knew how to be a city, but becoming a nation state with hardly any time to prepare was a different proposition altogether. So two processes had to happen simultaneously, each reinforcing the other. The first was state building, and alongside it, nation building. The process of state building after 1965 was driven by the single-minded devotion to the goal of survival. Building on the structural foundations of the colonial state, Singapore focused on getting the economy right, establishing functioning governing institutions, educating and housing its people, and creating an efficient bureaucracy to develop and implement policies. Very quickly, Singapore became a viable state with a thriving economy and an efficient system of governance with the wherewithal to feed, house, and educate its citizens. To defend its national territory and sovereignty, Singapore had to build its defense capabilities, and the Singapore Armed Forces came into being. As a state that had to conduct relations with other states, foreign policy became necessary. This fed into the process of nation building, which needed a much longer time. It has been argued that nationalism or national identity is not a phenomenon that appears suddenly. It is a result of a process by which a people become conscious of themselves as a separate national entity in the modern world, a process by which they become willing to transfer their primary loyalty from the village or the region or the monarch to the nation state. As a new nation state, Singapore had to build in its people a sense of community and emphasize its viability no matter how small in a world of nation states. But in the case of Singapore, this consciousness could not be built on the foundations of a common culture. Singapore was simply too diverse and complex to find common grounds in terms of identity. Neither did the country have a long shared history or common struggle on which to meld common purposes. As former minister Giorgio said, Singapore nationalism had to be cooked in a hurry without the fire of war or revolution. Nation building, the building of an intrinsic national identity was therefore a much more complicated enterprise than state building. How do you generate a lasting sense of identity, bonding and loyalty among a diverse and largely migrant population? 
whose identification with the state dated only a few years before 1965 when citizenship was first introduced in 1957. The population that until August 1965 had been told that they were Malaysian citizens now had to embrace a new identity as citizens of a new country. This was a wholly new experience for the people of Singapore, most of whom had never thought that Singapore could be independent, let alone national. Lee Kuan Yew made this very clear when he said, we ask ourselves, what is a Singaporean? In the first place, we did not want to be Singaporeans. We wanted to be Malayans. Then the idea was extended and we decided to be Malaysians. But 23 months in Malaysia, a traumatic experience for all parties in Malaysia, ended rather abruptly without being Singaporeans. From 1965, political leaders urged the people of Singapore to think of themselves as Singaporeans, not as Chinese, Malay, Indians, or Sri Lankans, least of all Malayans. But up to this point, Singapore had no experience of being a nation, and the people were not accustomed to being Singaporean. Yet nation-building was a critical part of making Singapore viable as a nation-state, if only to ensure that Singapore could maintain its independent sovereign status. Lee Kuan Yew declared in December 1965 that independence created the conditions for the eventual success of what we want, survival in Southeast Asia, as a separate and distinct people. He described Southeast Asia as a very turbulent part of the world, and Singapore had to be careful not to be absorbed or swallowed up by larger hordes. So the narrative of survivalism became a creed that was used to bind people together. But it was not just the fear of perishing that was used to build common purpose. As I described earlier, the state would use a combination of economic and social development in the context of political stability to build belief in a new nation state. Development and growth would be undergirded by shared values and beliefs that promised every citizen a chance to progress and prosper in a country of their own, regardless of race, religion, and socioeconomic status. Thus, the centrality of the principles of meritocracy and multiculturalism. Diversity had to be managed in the name of nationalism. Emphasizing Singapore's multiculturalism was important as the 1964 riots, or race riots, were still fresh in the memories of the government and its people. In many ways, the conception of the Singaporean nation grew out of its bitter experiences in Malaysia. As David Chang writes, after Singapore's separation from Malaysia, Malaysian Malaysia found its experimentation in Lee Kuan Yew's own multiracial, multilingual, multireligious nation. The PAP government adopted policies that actively managed Singapore's ethnic diversity. For instance, in the early post-independence years, PAP leaders tried to downplay the Chineseness of Singapore to avoid being perceived as a third China by its neighbours. A special position of the Malays was also recognised in Singapore's constitution with the designation of Malay as the national language and the provision of free education for Malays up to university level. At the same time, four official languages were selected English, Malay, Mandarin, and Tamil to be used in official documents, parliament, and schools. In the early years of independence, projecting the image of Singapore as both a harmonious patchwork of cultures and an English-speaking nation took precedence over highlighting cultural distinctions and heritage. The flag, national anthem, and pledge were important symbols of ideals and aspirations that would bind Singapore as a people, building the nation as a community of destiny. But loyalty and identity had to be nurtured and anchored on concrete experiences. National service and the education system became key vehicles 
for creating and sustaining national identity and a successful public housing scheme, as well as a growing economy, provided stability and belief in the nation. This is not to say that all nation-building efforts have been unambiguously positive. Some scholars view Singapore's policy of multiculturalism as an instrument of social control of, and policing of boundaries in the name of the larger public good and harmony. Another critique of the policy is that it functions as a tool for this empowerment by encouraging strong racial group identification, state multiculturalism theoretically prevents claims of cultural otherness or cultural discrimination. It has been argued that multiculturalism pushes race out of the front line of politics while still according it high visibility in a cultural sphere. As such, this ideology that served Singapore well in its search for national identity early on may have to be tweaked moving forward. So the challenges of nation building in the first decades uh, I've explained, the concept of a nation and a state and how state building and nation building had to coincide and happen together so that Singapore could build something that it was not used to being a nation state um, after 1965. But after decades, uh, and after decades of state and nation building, Singapore has established itself as a viable nation state. It now has all the characteristics of a nation state, territory, sovereignty, citizens, and a legitimate government. But the inherent dilemmas of a new nation state that grew out of an old commercial city have not gone away. Global competition has given rise to the need to revive the instincts of the open city, notwithstanding the demands of nurturing a local base of citizens. So this is a quote from Anthony Reid, a historian, who points out that by the end of the 20th century, an increasing global competition created an international context where the cosmopolis, this is what Singapore used to be, was becoming back to life, was becoming more necessary than ever. And the public rhetoric of nation appeared to be taking a step backwards, becoming less necessary in itself and less opposed to the cosmopolis. Public leaders openly appealed to make Singapore a cosmopolitan centre able to attract, retain and absorb talent from all over the world or be a global hub where people, ideas and capital can come together. So this is a new, this is a new rhetoric driven by the needs of the time and Singapore had to embrace uh, globalisation full on. And this has generated the tensions that are innate in a country that is a city. As a consequence of this dual personality, Singapore has had to actively and continuously connect with the wider world while taking care of a local citizenry and building national identity within its shores at the same time. Now, uh, IPS Director Janadas Devon had, uh, has argued, the fact that this city is all the country we will have informs every facet of our existence. As such, Singapore, the city and country, needs to be exceptionally and intricately well organised as an organism, organism, or risk not existing at all. He referred to Singapore's key infrastructure to illustrate how Singapore, being a country, means it has to, among other things, house its gateways, port and airport, manufacturing, military facilities, within its geographical limits. Given that public infrastructure and housing occupy well over half of Singapore's land area, it is inevitable that decisions that give importance to some goals while sacrificing others will have to be made for the PAP authorities managing Singapore as a city and country with a small land area amidst other challenges has translated to intense long-term planning and prominent government presence. Let me cite two examples where the Singapore government has had to mediate the contradictory pulls 
of internationalization, stroke, regionalization versus Singapore as home, and that of attracting foreign talent versus looking after Singaporeans. So the first uh, is immigration. Decisions arguably made, arguably made in the interest of pragmatism and expedience have not necessarily remained policies that continue to produce positive results. One example is Singapore's liberal immigration policies, which at its peak ran the risk of alienating the local population and contributed to xenophobic sentiments. Liberal immigration policies were and part of the government's plan to develop Singapore into a talent capital, attract migrants to fill the gap in manpower needs given Singapore's growing population and ultimately sustain its economic growth. However, the non-resident population increased at an unprecedented pace in the first decade of the 21st century, resulting in widespread public disapproval of the government's liberal immigration policies for highly skilled labour around the time of the 2011 general elections. Another wave of anti-immigrant sentiment which arose when the Population White Paper was released in 2013 illustrated the continued tensions between the needs of the city-state and the sentiments of the nation-state. Since then, the government has continued to reassure Singaporeans that the workforce is not disproportionately dependent on foreign labour. Its stance is that foreign talent complements rather than competes with the local workforce, even as it plans to reduce the number of employment passes it grants to qualified foreigners. In hindsight, some would argue that too quick an inflow of foreign workers depressed wages among low-wage workers and brought about avoidable social costs. While workers from abroad filled gaps in roles in a sector such as construction, health and social services, some locals have perceived foreigners to be taking from Singapore's economic pie rather than growing it. For instance, there continues to be resentment towards skilled workers turned permanent residents who are viewed as enjoying the benefits of citizenship without having to take on attendant obligations. As for low-skilled workers, they are largely forgotten, even as they have grown increasingly visible as part of Singapore's social landscape and public space. Singapore aspires to be a cosmopolis, but the cosmopolitanism in Singapore has also obviously had its clear limits. It has little room for migrant others, which include low-skilled domestic construction and manual workers. The other example um, is the arts. This, uh, the, this example demonstrates how there was pushback on the ground in response to state efforts to develop Singapore as a prominent arts destination and hub. Government efforts to quickly and visibly shape Singapore into a global city for the arts was not well received or received with any enthusiasm by the local arts practitioners. A former artistic director of, the local arts, of a local arts group argued that the hub model would retard the growth of our indigenous arts development because it prioritized massive infrastructural development, import of foreign specialists and tourism over benefits to local practitioners and smaller scale development projects. Some criticized the government's motives, nurturing arts and culture as a vehicle for economic growth rather than for its own intrinsic value. Cynics have also questioned if a vibrant art scene could ever be the result of government blueprints and whether an artistic society could be fostered through an economics-driven program of change. At the same time, from the government's point of view, attracting international players and supporting local players may be complementary rather than contradictory. However, government action has an outsized footprint and influence in Singapore 
compared to other cities because of our relatively smallness and one city proposition. As such, the tensions between different players that are sometimes natural for other cities play out on a national level in Singapore and become magnified in our context. But this duality does have its upsides. Although there are stresses that come with balancing the needs of city and country, Singapore has also played to its strengths as a city-state without compromising national identity. Minister for Finance Heng Sui Kiet said in his most recent budget speech, as a city-state, we are nimbler and can adapt to changes faster. Singapore can also take advantage of its strategic location and serve as a neutral, trusted node in key spheres of global activities. Former Minister Giorgio also expounded on the advantages of city-state possessing uh, that a city-state possesses in regulating its population and resolving urban issues. He said, because we are a city-state and not one city in a large nation-state, we are able to solve urban problems which many cities in the world are not able to. A city-state has its own borders. This is a great advantage. It is able to control and regulate the inflow of people. Because of this, Singapore has been able to clear its old slums and prevent new slums from forming. We have better control over our own environment. This is the key reason why we have been able to overcome problems of traffic, pollution, prostitution, drugs, crime, education, housing, healthcare, and so on. This is one major advantage we have as a city-state. Positioning itself as a global city offers other advantages. As large nation-states turn inwards and intense nationalism generates insularity and protectionism, globally-oriented cities could become important actors in place of traditional nation-states. Observers have suggested that this may create new patterns of competition and cooperation in the world, resembling Western Europe when the maritime city-state notably flourished. Diversity, once regarded as an obstacle to common identity and which had to be managed, is now seen as a key characteristic and strength. As contemporary Singapore continues to search for new ways to remain relevant in a global marketplace, it has to welcome people from all over the world in search of investment, work, and a better life. This means welcoming new immigrants and seeking ways to integrate these newcomers. However, as seen from the example of backlash in response to liberal immigration policies, managing diversity has proven to be a complex task. It's not merely about locals who feel pitted against foreigners, but also how the state manages different segments as groups within a country that include, on the one end, the high-wage, high-skilled professional managerial entrepreneurial elites, and at the other, the low-wage immigrants who occupy insecure niches in the unskilled and semi-skilled sectors of the urban service economy. Caught in between these two groups are middle-class Singaporeans. These groups are affected by globalization unevenly, Singaporeans generally accept that globalization has brought economic success to Singapore, but globalization processes have also brought about change and disruption, such as rising inequality, and for some, a sense of precariousness towards their livelihoods. As the city's population continues to grow more diverse, its identity also becomes more fluid. One thing is certain, as the canvas grows more colorful, the difficulty lies in blending the colors seamlessly while ultimately creating a harmonious role. The examples of immigration and arts and culture policies show that there are competing needs and wants, which require thoughtful responses and subsequent 
fine-tuning to ensure Singapore's continued flourishing. Another way of examining these competing goals is to look at them as two differing orientations. This is, uh, this is a part of Singapore that is more oriented. There is a part of Singapore that's more oriented towards itself, more inward focus, perhaps close, even as Singapore also regards and markets itself as an outward-looking, cosmopolitan and open country. So I quote Janatas Devan again, I can describe the political and economic and social contradiction between these two Singapore, Singapore's briefly thus. If this island nation does not remain one of the world's leading global cities, it cannot survive as an economy. We might as well not have left Malaysia. To sustain itself as a leading global city, Singapore must remain open to the world, welcome all varieties of talents, become and remain a cosmopolitan society and culture. To remain a nation, however, Singapore cannot be forever turned determinedly outwards. It cannot be so porous to, be, to the outside as to allow itself to be overwhelmed by the foreign. And it cannot resign itself to a diffuse and rootless cosmopolitanism. Life exists here and now in a particular place and time, or it cannot exist at all. But can the division be such a neat, tidy one? And is it correct also to see Singapore as being bifurcated um, into two groups of population, one internally oriented, oriented and the other always looking outwards? Perhaps it's not quite accurate to characterize Singapore as comprising of cosmopolitans and heartlanders, the then Prime Minister Goh Chok Tong referred to in his 1999 National Day Rally speech, even if this set of terms provides a starting point for us to think about the internal and external pools that Singapore negotiates. For then Prime Minister Goh, cosmopolitans were defined as English-speaking, international, in outlook, skilled in fields like banking, IT, engineering, science, and technology, while heartlanders were defined as speaking Singlish, being local in interest and orientation, making the living within the country, and playing a major role in maintaining core values and social stability. Some feared that the terms reflected a growing divide between Singaporeans on the basis of economic status, values, and outlook, while others were also concerned that these terms could create more of a barrier between Singaporeans, even if the barrier between the two groups started off as imagined. Another suggestion is that rather than having these two dualistic categories, perhaps there is a blending, and this is the intersection of these two circles, the one in the middle, and Singaporeans are more likely cosmolanders. It's an inelegant term, but let's call them cosmolanders, who could lead or could afford to lead global lifestyles but prefer the values of the heartlands. Now, another term we could use to reflect that reality is rooted cosmopolitanism. And this was a term coined by philosopher Kwame Anthony Apaya, who argues um, for this form of um, rooted cosmopolitanism as a way of blending the two things that I have spoken about. The term may seem oxymoronic, for to have roots suggests the need to be embedded in a specific history, nation, or people. While to be cosmopolitan is to declare oneself a citizen of the world. For Apaya, however, these two are inseparable. Local history, local histories, he reminds us, have themselves been shaped by the movements of peoples and their communal practices as old as human history itself. He argues for multiple affiliations 
and the idea that one can pledge allegiance to one's country and still conceive of oneself in terms of global identities or universal values. But whatever it is, Singapore, the nation state, cannot close itself off from global capital or labor flows. Its continued desire to be on the winning side of globalization while maintaining its viability as a nation state means that the government will have to constantly tread a fine line between protectionism and openness. And even as globalization continues to have a major effect on the cultures and cityscape of Singapore, there is a need to navigate it without alienating and leaving behind different groups of people. This could be locals and foreigners who call Singapore home, or Singaporeans who have heeded the call to seek opportunities beyond its shores, but find it difficult to maintain ties and relationships with Singapore, the city and nation that finds itself continually changing to suit global and regional trends. Singapore's government has, with time, come to recognize that to attract international companies and human capital, Singapore has to emphasize both our cosmopolitanism and Singapore's localness. I quote Giorgio again, the tension between being nationalistic and being cosmopolitan cannot be wished away. It has to be gingerly managed. Dogmatic and xenophobic nationalism will stifle initiative, inhibit trade, and drive talents away. It has to be broad-minded, practical, idealistic, but also distinctively Singaporean. On a day-to-day basis and at a local level, there will be the constant need to accommodate, accept, and adapt um, amongst groups operating in Singapore as the global and the local both negotiate for space in Singapore. So I'm going to make a plug for my college here, Yale US. This was a book that was done by a group of students uh, under the guidance of one of the teachers, uh, Professor Anju Paul. And this is a sto- these are stories uh, done uh, as a result of research by the students on different aspects of how the global and the local um, intersect in all spheres of Singapore life. So I come to my conclusion. In this lecture, I've shown how Singapore has evolved from um, city to country, and for the better part of its existence, it has functioned as an open city sustained by fluidity, mobility, and openness. Its culture was essentially hybrid and cosmopolitan. I argue that unlike many former Asian colonies, Singapore did not set out to be a nation state once it was freed from colonial rule. Instead, it aspired to be part of something larger, as part of the international socialist system, system and subsequently the Malaysian Federation. When the Malayan dream died with separation, Singapore became an independent nation state and had to strike out on its own. The new state had to work hard to ensure its viability as a new sovereign entity, its size and diversity notwithstanding. In the last half century, it has established itself as a young nation state but continues to grapple with the fact that it is a city and country in one. These dilemmas will persist as long as there's the desire to ride the crest of globalization while continuing to shape the local arena. In the title of my talk, I used the phrase, the idea of Singapore. I wanted to capture the essence of Singapore, its underlying spirit and mentality that had stayed consistent despite the many changes to its form. For me, the idea of Singapore must refer to the meaning and significance of the country. It must be larger than the island itself and must extend beyond its relative brief, relatively brief existence as a nation state. So in my mind, the idea of Singapore can best be encapsulated in, in a concept of smallness unconstrained. Smallness is a constant and reality in Singapore's history, 
but that smallness has never constrained the evolution of Singapore as a city, country and nation state. Thank you very much. Thank you, Prof Tan, for that lecture. The idea of Singapore, city, country, nation. You need to catch your breath, obviously. <laughs> and thank you, everyone, for joining us this evening. Uh, before we move on to the question and answer session, I'd just like to pick up on two points that you made in your lecture. So I'm glad you ended on a bright note by saying that for you, the idea of Singapore is summed up in the phrase, smallness unconstrained. I think the question that uh, came to my mind as I heard this was going forward, whether our smallness will continue to be unconstrained. Um, and perhaps the answer lies in something that you said at the start of your lecture, which was that the trajectory that we took um, could not have been predicted uh, beforehand, but was the result of, among other things, accommodation, reimagination, and risk taking. Uh, so, the, the second point that I wanted to pick up on was that you had also noted the tensions inherent in Singapore being both a global city and a nation, and the challenge of uh, navigating globalization without alienating or leaving behind different groups of people who call Singapore home. So now we have uh, 30 minutes for questions, and I invite all of you with questions for Prof Tan to come to one of the four mics in the auditorium. Uh, please remember to introduce yourselves and to keep your questions uh, brief. But um, since uh, it's the moderator's prerogative to get us started, I will ask the first question. And uh, my question to you, Prof Tan, is, in your view, how well is Singapore doing in uh, navigating globalization while taking care of those who call this place home? And lecture again. Well, I, I think that, that, that's the gist of what I've been trying to say, that this is a constant calibration, if, as it were. So from 1965, maybe the first two decades, the focus was on building the nation, building the state, building the nation. That was the priority. You have to make Singapore work. You have to make Singapore function and be respected by its neighbours and the world. But then as the world globalises, Singapore's instincts come to the fore, as a global city, come to the fore. And then it has now to engage a globalized world. Now, herein lies the tension. And this thing is not going to go away, as I said. It's got to be gingerly managed, and the calibrations have to be put in place. Um, there will always be new challenges. Labor is one. Uh, I mentioned immigration. Uh, and then you know, uh, opening up other spheres in the arts, in education, and, and, and jobs. So these are constant struggles that a state like Singapore, which is a city and a country, will have to deal with. Um, I don't know what the next set of challenges is going to be, uh, but you know it is not going to go away. So how it negotiates that um, fine line between openness and close uh, protectionism will be the challenge of every government in Singapore. Well, tell us a bit about your experience um, in education. So uh, 
you know, I, I, I work in a, a, a school that is a, a hybrid, right? Yale and NUS. So this is an example of how um, Singapore is really global in, 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 in that regard. It is able to uh, enter into a partnership with one of the top private universities in the US, and yet we have in our name the National University of Singapore. So it is both um, something that is local here, but yet has such an external orientation. Um, the point is, um, Yale would not have partnered NUS if not for the reputation of our university, and if not for the fact that this is in Singapore. I think that those are major factors. So the quality of what we offer must be a, a, a factor. But of course, when you do that kind of collaboration, then there has to be certain openness, because uh, then a college like Yale NUS um, may not be able to function like, say, the National University of Singapore or Nanyang uh, Technology University in terms of the kinds of policies that you can apply to your national university. So here is where, again, there's constant negotiation for that space um, to, on the one hand, uh, develop some distinctiveness as an Asian local Singaporean institution and yet to create that space for some international exposure that would benefit, I'm convinced, not just um, Singaporeans, but people from all over the world. So I'm, I'm using uh, my own experience in this regard to show how these things can be complicated, but it can be done. Thank you. I, I think there's a question from that gentleman over there. Yeah, please. Good evening, um, Prof Tan. Thank you for your sharing and your speech. I would like to know your views. Sorry, I, uh, could oh, I get I'm you to Edmund, introduce Edmund, uh, alumnus of NTU and NUS. So uh, may I please uh, ask you to elaborate on your view of Singapore as the idea of a nation in terms of um, there are different narratives. Was Singapore expelled, kicked out, booted out? Or was Singapore formed as a result of a negotiated, a planned and negotiated agreement? So there are different narratives. I'm of the view that Singapore was consciously, Singapore leaders like Dr. Goh and Mr. Lee were consciously planning for the separation. Yes, yes, because in 60, right. July '65, okay. he actually planned for he actually planned for a he asked Eddie Barker to draft a proclamation of independence. He didn't ask Eddie Barker to draft a proclamation of a loser federation. So by the actions, it despite what was said and what has been said, it the actions showed that there was the conscious plan to initiate this proclamation of independence in July 65. So I'd like to know your view. Okay, so thank you. Yeah, thank you. Let's hear from Prof Tan. Okay. Uh, well, uh, let me first say that um, the desire for merger was a real one. You know, Singapore believed uh, fervently, Lee Kuan Yew, the PAP, be believed fervently that Singapore had no future unless it went back to Malaysia and uh, went back to Malaya and be part of a larger federation. Um, there was a period that led up to the eventual merger in September 1963, and I'd written about that period, and it was a complex period of tough negotiations, because I think you all know that the Tunku was actually not keen to have Singapore. It, he felt that um, by bringing in one million additional Chinese, it would upset his racial arithmetic in, uh, in Malaysia or Malaya, and also, he also believed that um, the Chinese in Singapore were all radicalized 
all left-wing uh, communists or communist sympathizers. And he had just fought 12 years of the Malayan emergency, and the last thing he needed was to have this group of people coming in to unsettle the politics of the Federation. So he was not keen at all. But he was persuaded eventually um, because uh, the argument was that if you left Singapore out, Singapore would definitely fall to the communists, and then you, you would have what he, he, he called the Cuba in Malaysia's backyard. You would have a situation outside. And um, he was advised that it is easier to deal with the problem as part of your own country, one of your states, than to have it outside where you have to then go into an international kind of situation. So he was persuaded and Singapore came in. But because of his initial reluctance, there were tough negotiations on various fronts. Citizenship, um, sharing of taxes, um, Singapore's representation, etc., etc. So the marriage that eventually happened did not start off on a very positive ground. Within a year of Singapore getting into Malaysia, all sorts of problems um, started to surface. So you are right in that there were some members of the Singapore cabinet who, were, who had already been convinced that this was not working. Go King Sui was one of them. He was a hard-nosed economist. He said that, look, you know, we came in looking for common market. There was no common market because all the things that they sent up for approvals, um, the industries were all rejected. So he said there's no common market. And yet, the PAP was constantly attacked by the AMNO Ultras and um, they were sus suspicious of Lee Kuan Yew's political ambition of wanting to control Malaysia and so on and so forth. So from very early on, I think Go King Sui had felt that this was not working and let's try to find a way out. Lee Kuan Yew, um, from what I know, was still very conflicted. On the one hand, and he really believed in the project, but at the same time, you know, he was seeing all these problems that he was facing. So I think he agreed to let um, Go King Sui negotiate with Razak, who was Tungku's deputy, on other arrangements. So it was not an exit. It was a looser federation, confederation. Various options were discussed. In the end, all did not work. So it, was a, it wasn't as if that they had planned to exit the moment they went in, but they were trying all ways to see whether that federation can be saved. And in the end, I think there was no choice uh, but to leave Singapore. So you're right in that um, it was not totally unexpected because I think we all were given the version that you know, this was such a shock to everybody, nobody expected it, and we were told to leave by August 1965. But there were negotiations, but these negotiations um, did not mean that there was already a plan to exit. They were still finding ways to save the Federation, but in the end, it could not be saved, and that was what happened in August 1965. Okay, thanks very much, Prof Tan. Does, uh, okay, there's a question from uh, the student up there. Hi. Hi. Uh, Jiao from, uh, Jiao Ko from uh, Anderson Serangoon Junior College. Uh, thank you, Professor Tan, for your uh, very informative lecture. I was just wondering, um, as you spoke about how uh, early nation-building policies like um, multiculturalism has have been met with like some criticism, and was wondering about your thoughts on uh, the early educational policies, um, such as the special assistance program, um, uh, and how they uh, have created, uh, they've built the nation of Singapore today. Wow, that's a, that's a big question, and you know the, the education minister just uh, announced a whole <laughs> slew of very dramatic changes. So I I shouldn't go into it, but 
you know, the, the thing that you should understand from history is you, you've always got to understand the context in which things happen, right? In 1965, when Singapore emerged as a nation state, it had to quickly build, as I said, the state. And the state needed manpower, manpower to service the industries and the, 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 the manufacturing base. So the educational policies at that time was geared towards a very functional approach, produce the people who can help the economy. So technical drawing, you know, technical education, all those things were priorities. So Lee Kuan Yew famously said that you know, literature was a luxury at that time. So the point was to produce people who could function in the economy. So those were the kinds of things that you know, I, as a boy, grew up learning uh, metal work and all that sort of thing. Of course, then as Singapore evolved and rose in the value chain, then things became more sophisticated, R&D and that sort of thing. And that, that was what happened as Singapore developed into a more advanced country. So plans like streaming and all this, I think they were, they, they were implemented to avoid wastage. It had a good intention at the time because when you had limited resources and you want to make sure that you had optimal use of your resources, you had to make sure that you know, uh, the, the kinds of outcomes that you can achieve um, were the best given your limited resources. So I think streaming and all these were aimed with a kind of purpose, but then it produced a series of unintended consequences as most things would, right? So then people felt that they were left behind, there were discrimination, inequality, and I think the government has responded again through these announcements of what's going to happen in uh, 2024 or whatever. So I think you, can, you must see these things as always active and moving. And I, I would think that it would be a failure of government if they did nothing, that they had a policy in 1965 or 66 and stuck with it uh, regardless because of ideology. But I think they've showed that they are able to adapt and that's why you see all these changes. Sorry, just to clarify, were you asking about SAP schools? Uh, Special assistance? Yes, um, yeah. Oh, okay. Do you have yeah. any view on that, Prof Dan? Or <laughs> <laughs> if you uh, rather not, I mean, I, yeah. I think well, it's I, a. I can, I can, a I can you know, the, 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 the SAP schools, I uh, know, uh, uh, students have written about it, the public have written about it. I think it was, uh, again, started with good intentions. You wanted to. to uh, uh, provide avenues for Chinese culture, Chinese language to flourish among Singaporeans. And there are also practical reasons, the rise of China and all that. But the SAP schools, in my view, have become tied to the hierarchy of schools according to how good these schools are. So it's not about students choosing SAP schools because they, they, they love Chinese culture or Chinese language, but because they are good schools. So it's, these are good schools, these are not good schools, and I want to go to SAP schools because they're good schools. So is it achieving its purpose? It depends on who you ask. I've spoken to my own students, some of them from SAP schools, and they tell me they dislike Chinese language intensely. But they were products of SAP schools. There are others who tell me that actually they've benefited immensely from SAP schools because of the awareness of Chinese culture, literature, and so on. So I think it has different outcomes, but the point is that uh, do SAP schools still fulfill a function? I think they do, but the question is whether can they be made more diversified? Because if the SAP schools create students or produce students who only know fellow Chinese students, then I think that's not a good outcome. So it's whether the diversity can be brought into the SAP schools. Thank so you so I, much. I don't know, yeah. Thank, Thank you, you so much. And I'm so glad that I asked the follow-up question because that was certainly a very interesting <laughs> answer. Uh, yes, yes. Hi, uh, I'm Sarah. Hi, Prof Tan. Um, my question is um, the concept 
and label of the accidental nation state. Uh. Would you say that it is not unique to Singapore? Yeah, if you look at history, you know, uh, you know that's, that's why I explained the, the concept of the nation state. And uh, nation states came out because that was the way the world had to be organized after decolonization, right? But if you look at many nation states today, are they natural? Are they unnatural? They are put together because they happen to be there. Boundaries were drawn by departing imperialists just to put things together. I mean, the, the area that I know best, for instance, you know, uh, South Asia is a subcontinent. Uh, it was very disparate, very sort of uh, diversified before the British came, organized the whole subcontinent into one empire. But when the British left, they divided the, um, the, the, the subcontinent into Pakistan that was divided into two wings. Can you imagine that one country separated by almost a thousand miles of hostile country? And then, of course, one wing became Bangladesh subsequently. So this continues. Now, if you're an an island country like Singapore, okay, then the, the boundaries are clearer. But if you look at Africa, if you look at the Middle East, you look at South Asia, uh, these boundaries were sometimes quite haphazard. So I would say that we are not the only unnatural nation. Uh, there are many, many such cases in the world today, and they continue to face problems um, that are faced today. I mean, look at Malaysia. You brought in Sabah and Sarawak. Did they belong? Well, they were put together by the British. Brunei did not come in, doing well by itself. So these are all accidents of history, if you want. So, so Prof Tan, uh, just to follow up on that, I mean, how does uh, being an accidental nation-state affect uh, our process of like national identity formation? You have to work harder. You have to look, uh, <laughs> work a lot harder. I mean, this is, this is the example of Singapore. I mean, up to 1964, okay, 64, 65, the plan was not to be your own country, right? The plan was to be a very successful city in the Malaysian Federation. And then within a year, 18 months, you find that you're out on your own. So you have to make it work. Then you have to become a nation state. You have to get your army. I remember reading Mr. Lee, Mr. Lee's memoirs where he said he was actually concerned that he, had, he didn't have a defense force in Singapore. Then you had to put in place all the other things that made you a nation. Sovereignty is not something that just drops from the sky. You have to defend it armed forces, and then foreign affairs, foreign policy, all these are challenges. So an accidental and unnatural nation have to work doubly hard to make sure that it works. And I think that was the phase that Singapore went through in the first 20 or 30 years of its life. Okay, thanks very much. Yeah, I was very struck uh, by, I think, something you said about how we were supposed to be Malayans, and then we were supposed to be Malaysians, and then suddenly we were supposed to be Singaporeans. I, I didn't say that, Lee Kuan Yew said <laughs> Oh, I see. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, uh, sir. Uh, my name is Scott Chen. I'm from Nation Builders. This year, we intend to have the Singapore Challenge on the hawker culture. So I would like to ask Professor Tan, what would be the next two major national challenges that you would recommend for us to embark? Thank you. Sorry, what, what's Nation Builders? I'm, I'm, I'm the one who is lost here. Okay, Nation Builder is a is a non-profit organization to encourage responsible and constructive citizenship. It's a ground-up movement to encourage Singaporeans to give back to society, and we are a non-profit. We incorporated last year. Okay, thank you. Okay, I'll, I'll give you one. Okay, I'll give you one, and this is something that's very close to my heart, and this is about history. I mean, the narrative that I've given you 
is a broad overarching narrative. And all of us have gone through schools where we read textbooks about these um, big narratives. And the bicentennial that is happening now has triggered uh, reactions from people, right? Both positive and negative. The negative ones, they say that, oh, we're not interested in raffles, you know, why do we celebrate colonialism and what does raffle mean to me? No meaning. But there is another group of people who say that we are trying to find meanings in our own history, what history means to me personally. And that challenge would be an interesting one if Singaporeans could find ways of developing their own understanding of history, then that, could, that would be a way of anchoring or developing deeper identities. Now again, I make another plug for something that I've done. We started in Yale and US College this project called The Future of Our Past. The Future of Our Past. And we deliberately not, did not want to get professional historians involved because we didn't want, we, we were given some resources um, to, to, to support these projects, but we didn't want professional historians to get involved and write another book on history. But we approach young Singaporeans, not just from the college, but from all over Singapore, to develop stories that they think are important for themselves and what it would mean to them as an individual, as a community, and as a people. And we had 11 projects that now is being sort of showcased in a festival. And these are wonderful projects. We had one uh, on um, resettlement, HDB. And this was a recreation of the 1960s and 19, uh, the 1970s where people had to be resettled. And there was a, 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 an immersion kind of uh, production. I, I went through it and where you had to see an officer explain how many durian trees you have and what sort of compensation you have. Now, these sort of things matter to people whose parents may have gone through, they may not have gone through it, the parents may have gone through it. There was another one that talked about multiculturalism. This was, um, this is uh, an Malaysian Sri Lankan Tamil boy who is, uh, whose girlfriend is an American-born Chinese. Both of them met in Singapore. And the, the, they are making a, docu uh, a kind of a documentary, uh, a movie, and it's called Rojak Romance. Rojak romance. Now, it is important because it is about how people here function individually uh, as individuals and what history means to them. So that would be a project I would recommend. Get more Singaporeans, young Singaporeans if possible, to do more of this sort of histories and not do the overarching big story kind of thing, but histories from the ground. And there are lots of opportunities. The space, the market, the schools, the streets. Uh, and another project which was done in this festival was the merger of the junior colleges the merger of Tampanese and Meridian, I think, Tampanese, and what it means to people who are affected, because we read about it, a merger, you know, it's very functional, but the tuck shop owners, the teachers who have taught in one JC for 30 years, the students who have grown up in the vicinity knowing that school, what did it mean to them? So I think those are important things that we mustn't lose sight of. So if you wanted a challenge, I pose that to you. Okay. Thank you so much. And uh, are there any quest Are there any more questions? Yes, because well, we don't have much time left. Okay. Yes, the gentleman up there. Uh, thank you, Ms. Uh, Lim, and also thank you, Prof. Tan, for the lecture. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm from the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. I should also add that at 2 p.m. this afternoon, I had a class with uh, Professor Kenneth Paul Tan, uh, titled uh, "Governing Nation State and Global City Singapore." So apparently, this can I get enough of this uh, topic? But yeah. Uh, I think a, a, a very huge uh, element of, uh, I think a very paramount element of the journey of Singapore thus far has been 
the uh, ruling party, right, the, the People's Action Party, and how it has had a strong mandate throughout the years to chart Singapore's journey. Uh, but at this point in time, as you know, we know that transition is on the cards. Uh, we know that you know there's going to be a new prime minister on the cards. Uh, what are some pressing challenges that you, you know, immediate challenges actually for uh, the the administration moving forward? Thank you. Thank you. Well, we're certainly working you very hard tonight, Prof Tan. Um, ah. Yes. Uh, and, and maybe getting me into trouble as well, <laughs> but never mind. <laughs> well, I think it's the, it's the aspirations of the time, if I could broadly put it like that, the aspirations of the time. Um, every generation has different needs and also different aspirations. My father's generation had very different needs. And you know, you provided him with a HDB flat. We moved from a kampong. He had a job. He had his CPF. And I think that made him happy. And then a younger generation may require more things. You know, their aspirations may be very different. Um, Lydia and I were just talking before the session started because I was reading her wonderful piece, which I recommend in commentary. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, no, no, that was totally on my own volition. Uh, where he talked, where, where she mentioned a letter written by a group of NUS students to, I think it was the prime minister, right? Yeah, the prime minister, prime minister, the fourth prime minister, and basically saying that, are you listening to us? Do you know what we want? Are you prepared to um, listen to voices that are different from those that you have heard traditionally? So I think these are new aspirations that are coming up, and the needs are very different. You know, these are what we call the millennials or what have you, but they have grown up in an environment that's totally different from my father's generation and even mine. They are more exposed, more traveled, they read the social media uh, constantly. So they will have different sets of expectations. Now, how the leadership relates to that group of people with all these differences will be a challenge, I think. And I think that's, again, the challenge of the times. Um, 1965 to 1985, one set of challenges. Late 1900s to the early 21st century, another set of challenges. And there'll be another set of challenges. So that, in my view, would be the, the connection, the compact, if you want, between the government and a newer generation of Singaporeans who've had a very different experience would be the main challenge. Yes, in fact, before the lecture, I mean, you kind of picked up on the question that we were discussing before Prof Tan delivered the lecture because um, I said that in, in his lecture, he, he noted that not all aspects of uh, Singapore's nation building have been unambiguously positive. And I, I wanted to ask him about, you know, uh, be, be, oh, he cited the policy of state multiculturalism, which also picks up on the other point that our, our friend from Anderson Junior College had asked about, uh, multiculturalism policy, right? How the policy of state multiculturalism, for example, has been criticized by some scholars for being an instrument of um, social control and a tool of disempowerment. So I just wanted him to comment on, you know, whether he thought this was still a problem and, and we were talking about different expectations, especially among younger Singaporeans. Uh, perhaps they, they would like to have a feel that they have a larger say in how the country is uh, developing or moving forward. And there's also the, this issue of, um, do we feel that the government of the day trusts us enough uh, to disagree and yet uh, be, I guess, patriotic to, to Singapore? So I, I think that this is, uh, as you said, I mean, this is a, th these are changing expectations and um, uh, a, a process of uh, responding to new challenges that arise. 
Um, are, are there any more questions at all? Oh, yes, there is one more. Yes, this Hello. is the last question, I think, because we don't have much more time. Hello, good evening, you. Prof Tan. I'm Kamal. I'm Prof Tan student in class of 1993. <laughs> I was a young man then, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's very interesting that we are talking about uh, the formation of uh, national identity or national consciousness. Um, I'm very interested because you said something about national identity can be anchored upon a historical past, right? But I'm also noticed that, for, for example, take myself, huh? uh, our national identity is also born out of a certain erasures of our past. Myself, for example, I'm born in 1972, right? That gives you an idea how old I am. Um, my primary school is no longer around. My secondary school has been demolished. The spaces that I frequent as teenagers are no longer frequented by teenagers today. Even my junior college has moved. My only pass of the educational institution is NUS, right? But then again, AS3 now has become AS8, I think, right? AS transformed itself. The rapidity in which we change our spatial uh, uh, spaces, right, uh, kind of like gives us um, that unsettled feeling that connection to the past is a bit ruptured, right? So it makes um, the building of national identity around spaces. And I think as humans, it's very primordial, right? That sense of space and us and how we connect to those spaces. The playgrounds, for example, that we frequent, the swings, you know? The, the pace in which we move Singapore, like what you said, to respond to global changes and how internally we had to reorganize, sometimes is very unsettled even for my generation. Like, for example, I, I, I talked to my parents, let's go out. You know, they will talk to me about Odeon and Cathay, and that's like way, way back. And I kind of like understand where they are coming from, because even my me, me and my wife, the spaces that we talked about that are cool and happening, I mean, we, we remember the Far East Plaza kids and so on, but nowadays kids don't go to Far East Plaza anymore. I have no idea where, where they go. So, Come on, it, yeah, my, my, my question is, I, I just want you, uh, your, your thoughts on this, this erasure that's happening of our past in the name of national progress and urban renewal and so on, and how that will mean for future. And, and because as an educator myself, it makes relating to our present generation very challenging because there's no spaces to anchor people around. Your, your views, sir. Well, this is exactly the kind of challenge when you have a country that's a city. That's all the space we have, you see. 600 square kilometers of space. I mean, in the name of progress, something's got to give, unfortunately. Unfortunately. So it's a trade-off. It's a trade-off. Um, but I guess it all comes down to planning as well. It all comes down to planning. So we have a National Heritage Board. We have a Preservation of Monuments kind of authority. They are all looking at possibilities at this. But... You know, um, if you want to create new places for this or that, schools, housing and all this, something's got to give because we, we, ha we don't have infinite spaces. So I think that's a trade-off that we have to deal with. Um, but I agree with you that there is erasure because when spaces go missing or are redeveloped and you've grown up after spending a certain time in, with, with familiarity of that surrounding, then something is lost. Um, so here is where I, I don't have an answer. I understand the problems. Uh, but I also understand that the National Heritage Board are trying to find ways of engagements and finding ways in which people could take ownership of um, developing memories about the space. And even if the space may have been transformed, whether some form of memories can be developed. I talked about the merger of JCs. I mean, yes, it's gone. JCs is gone, but they have captured it in a, a kind of a web documentary or what. 
and whether those can be done using technology. It's not ideal, uh, but you know, as I said, these are the constraints we face as a small country, what to do. But the point is that if we are conscious about wanting to preserve some of the memory, there are many ways. But um, physically preserving a place indefinitely may not be workable for a place like Singapore. Okay, um, thank you very much, uh, Prof Tan. Not, not only for the lecture, but for your responses, your very passionate and candid responses. And I personally you know, felt that some of the points you made really resonated with my own history. For example, I'm a SAP school student who can't really speak much uh, Mandarin. <laughs> and, um, and, and this whole point about asking young people to try and find meaning in our past by doing their own exploration. I mean, I think that one of the most vivid memories of history class for me was when I was in secondary one and my history teacher asked us to go and write an essay about our own family history. And I interviewed my mother and she talked about my grandfather who was an opium addict. And, and you know how, how I felt this sense of pride when uh, my history teacher put my essay on the wall. And yeah, um, so I, I trust that some, much of what Prof Tan said also resonated with you and, and your history. Uh, so I, let, let's put our hands together to thank him. Thank you, Prof Tan and Ms Lim. For Prof Tan's fifth lecture, we will have a change of format. It will be a dialogue between two historians, uh, Prof Tan and Prof Wang Gangwu, who also happens to be in the audience today. Um, yeah. uh, so the discussion it will be on the 9th of April, which is quite soon. Uh, Prof Tan and Prof Wang's discussion will be centered on the idea of the nation state in Southeast Asia ident and identity and history. Uh, details will be on our website and we hope to see you then. Uh, thank you all for coming for today's lecture and have a good evening. <laughs>